0: Good morning church. The reading is out of the book of Revelation chapter 7 from verses 9 to 17. Is that right? There? <laughs> Good things. Thank you. Uh, Revelation 7 from verses 9 to 17. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All angels were standing around the throne and around elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength to be our be to our God forever and ever amen then one of the elders asked me these in white robes who are they and where did they come from i answered sir you know and he said these are they who have come out of the great tribulation They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tent over them. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb... At the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of God.
1: Well, good morning everybody, it's lovely to see you. Um, can I say a special word of thanks to the uh, to everybody really for making the bridal shower yesterday and the bachelors for BC in the evening. Such a happy and special time. It was really, really lovely. A lovely demonstration of family, I thought. Um, right, so next Sunday morning, we're starting a new series. Um, called Christmas in Context, and fitting in with the uh, illustration that Alice gave us in Family Focus of the Jesse Tree and all of those scriptures in the Old Testament that whisper the name of Jesus. What we're going to be doing in our series for four Sundays is looking at the servant songs in the book of Isaiah, which probably more than any other passages in the Old Testament do indeed, well, more than whisper, shout the name of Jesus. So do please make sure you're with us, bring your friends uh, for that next Sunday morning, but to this morning is the last of our uh, studies in the present series in which we've been taking a bit of a journey through the Bible and looking at this theme of God scattering in judgment and then the stages by which God gathers his people. And today is the last. We're in Revelation 7. I hope you've got that open in front of you. And the title of the message is Gathered Forever. But before we go any further, let's pray. Let's ask for the Lord's help. Our loving Father, we thank you that you do for us that which we are not able to do for ourselves in bringing us salvation and blessing after blessing. We pray today that in your kindness and power you would give us one more blessing of understanding this part of your word, being convinced and comforted and living in the light of it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, is there a future for the church? Uh, I think if we were to go out onto the streets of Cape Town this afternoon and ask people that question, uh, an alarming number of people, I think, would say no. I don't actually think the church does have a future. And then if we were to press them and ask them what comes into their minds when they hear the word church, they might say something like this. When I hear the word church, I think of a rather run-down building uh, with a few sleepy people in it and a discouraged, overworked pastor. Of course, they wouldn't say that about St. Barnabas. But uh, that, I think, is the caricature of a typical local church that many people have in their minds. And even if the image they have in their minds isn't quite as bleak as that, I don't suppose that when they hear the word church that many people are thinking in terms of the huge crowds that uh, gathered recently to watch the Rugby World Cup Uh, On our TV screens, you remember, we saw those stadiums, didn't we? Packed with people, cheering, full of hope, full of expectation. Most churches are not like that. Where I come from in the UK, uh, many old church buildings have been sold off. Uh, They've been converted into trendy homes or wine bars or nightclubs. And uh, my guess is it won't be long before that happens here if it hasn't happened already. So, is there a future for the church? My aim this morning is to persuade you that the Church of Jesus Christ has the brightest possible future. And I want to so fill our minds with a vision for the church's future that we will gladly give our energies to the church in the present. But I think let's just start with a, a brief summary of the story. So far it's quite ambitious, isn't it, to cover the whole Bible in just five sessions. Let me try and give you a very brief summary overview. We could call this a brief history of heaven and earth, but don't panic. It won't take long, because the Bible presents the story of heaven and and earth as a drama in just three acts. Uh, Act one was all the way back in the Garden of Eden when right at the beginning there was no distinction between heaven and earth because God and man were living together in the garden. But act one, of course, didn't last very long because with the disobedience of Adam, and the expulsion from the garden, what then happened was heaven and earth divided. Now that's the beginning of Act 2. And at that point, heaven became God's space, so not a location in our time-space universe, but rather the place where God lives, and it's distinct, it's separate from us, and heaven is the place right now where God's will is done perfectly in a way that it is not done here on earth. Of course, I need to clarify that. God's will is done here on earth but not in the same way that it is in heaven, which is of course why Jesus taught us to pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Heaven became God's space. Earth became our space, meaning the Earth and the universe we can see with our eyes. And then we saw that separated from God, it didn't take long for Earth to become divided and scattered and broken, full of broken people. And that's where we began our series five weeks ago. And then we saw that God began to reveal his master plan to remake our broken world. And you remember we looked at Mount Sinai, which was the first assembly in the Bible, the first gathering of the people of God. And you remember they were assembled, weren't they, under the word of God? But you'll also remember they had to keep their distance because the, the, the holiness of God. And the fallenness of humanity was an unbridgeable divide. And it meant that intimacy and personal relationship with God were impossible. It was a huge problem. Two weeks ago, we saw that God provided the solution to the problem at the cross. And you remember that the Lord Jesus Christ said, when I am lifted up on the cross... I will gather all people to myself, all kinds of people. And then last week, we learned that this tremendous news of a restored relationship with God at the cross began to go out to the rest of the world on the day of Pentecost, that day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers. So today, local churches like this and others like it all the way around the world are evidence of the gathering that God is doing through men and women like us as the Holy Spirit motivates us to tell everyone the great good news of Jesus and his overflowing love for people. Now, this morning, we come to Act 3. And act three is the final act in the drama. And we come to what's often referred to as the new heavens and the new earth. Sometimes it's called the new creation. Sometimes it's called the new Jerusalem. And the new heavens and the new earth is the future that awaits the local church. And it is spectacularly wonderful. But having said that, I think for most Christians, it's a forgotten truth. They don't understand it, so they don't think about it, and because they don't think about it, they aren't living for it. And so this morning, I want to bring this forgotten truth of the new heavens and the new earth right into the forefront of our thinking. Now we're going to come to Revelation 7 in a moment, but I want to try and clarify our thinking about the new heavens and the new earth by asking three simple questions. And the first question we might ask is this, who is in heaven now? Well the Bible gives us a number of answers to that uh, question which we can cover extremely quickly. Obviously, God the Father is there. Well, of course he is. He's our Heavenly Father. Uh, He's our Father in Heaven. That's where he lives. And from there, he has perfect knowledge of everything that's happening here on Earth. Second, Jesus Christ is there in his resurrected body. The New Testament tells us in various places that Jesus has gone into heaven, he's ascended to the Father, he's entered heaven itself, and he's seated at God's right hand. And from there, he rules with all authority in heaven and on earth. And I should add that the fact that Jesus is there in his resurrected body means that heaven is not spiritual in the way that you and I sometimes use that word. When we use that word spiritual, we tend to think of something that's sort of ghostly, something that's non-material. It's a bit like the morning mist, something that lacks physical substance. Heaven is not like that. It's spiritual because it's the place where God is. But dear friends, heaven is a real physical location. If you like, I think this is a helpful way to think about it. It's a physical universe that is next door to our universe. We can't access it from our universe. And yet, Jesus is already there in his physical resurrection body. Third dead Christians are there in spirit they are consciously in the presence of the Lord Jesus. They don't yet have their resurrection bodies uh, they're looking forward to that as we'll see in a moment but they are with Jesus in heaven now. And uh, The New Testament, as I hope you know, tells us that being in heaven with Jesus now is far better than being here. And fourthly, living Christians are already there in their status. Think about this. Uh, There's a place in Paul's letter to the Philippians where he says that our citizenship is in heaven. Now, friends, that's incredibly important. Because what it means is that when we die, we go straight to heaven without any complications or hold up. There's no interview. There's no border control. There's no final exam. What a relief. And we are already citizens of heaven. That's where we belong. And when we die... Jesus will be waiting to welcome us. So, if you like, that's a brief snapshot of heaven now. But uh, the Bible prods us then to ask a second question. It might sound a bit strange at first, but bear with me, and I'll try and show you why it's so very important. The question is this. What are we waiting for? In other words... What is the ultimate future that the Bible holds out to every Christian? Fasten your seatbelts, because the very startling and surprising answer is that if we are Christians, we are not waiting for heaven. Now that might be a surprise for some of us, but you see the teaching of the New Testament is that what Christians are waiting for and longing for, listen to me carefully, is the return of heaven to earth. Do you remember a moment ago we said that back in Act 1, heaven and earth were separated? That happened when Adam disobeyed God and was expelled from the garden. And the New Testament says that Christians are looking forward to the day when heaven and earth will be reunited. And there is a sense in which the Bible teaches that heaven, you see, is not actually the final destination for Christians. So two weeks ago we looked at that passage in Hebrews 12, which speaks about the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God, And the heavenly Jerusalem, friends, is going to be two things. So come with me, please, to Revelation 7. If you've closed your Bible, just open it. Revelation 7, verse 9. Verse 9 these extraordinary words. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. Now, friends, that is the the final gathering of all the people of God from every age in history and the present. It's the gathering that was anticipated on the day of Pentecost when the curse of Babel was reversed. And suddenly all sorts of people from every nation under heaven could hear and understand the gospel in their own language. Remember that. And here in Revelation 7, the Apostle John sees in his vision the final gathering of the people of God from every age. You see, friends, this is where our broken world... My goodness me, is it broken. This is where our broken world... Is finally and perfectly remade, and the local church is an anticipation of it. Now, that you see is why the local church ought to be more like the enormous crowds that were cheering on the spring box in the Rugby World Cup. That's what it ought to be like. Gift, say amen. Thank you. We ought to be full of expectation and hope and excitement full of a sense that that's the future that awaits us. But the vision of the heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation also shows us how heaven and earth are going to be reconnected. Because if you know the chapter, you'll know in chapter 21 of Revelation that uh, the new Jerusalem The bride of Christ, that the people of God gathered from every age, he sees that. But what he sees is totally unexpected. Because he doesn't see the Christians who are still alive being taken up there to join them in heaven. He doesn't see that. No, he sees that great city. He sees that new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth. Isn't that interesting? So the vision of the new Jerusalem in Revelation is of two things. It is the final gathering of all the people of God in every age, and it's the reconnection of heaven and earth. It's the healing of that terrible fracture between heaven and earth that took place all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. If you like, one way to think about it, it's the Garden of Eden reoccupying our world. And it's the place where the Tree of Life is accessible to all the people of God forever and ever. That is what Christians are waiting for. And it's the future of the local church. Life In a real, physical, pleasurable place with no decay, no evil, no pain, no tears, no death. And it's the place where all of the good things that we experience today, because we all do experience some good things, perhaps in the beauty of music, uh, or the stimulus of sport, or the intimacy of sex in marriage, or the taste of good food, or the joy of travel. All those things will be transformed and enjoyed to the maximum in a perfect new creation. So, the new creation will be a glorious, transformed, physical world. And that means that contrary to what many, many people think, the local church has a wonderful future. It's a significant, purposeful, joyful life made possible for us by the love of God in Jesus. And therefore, when we meet as a church, there ought to be this sense that we're part of something that's cosmically wonderful, something that's infinitely important and majestic, and uh, if our hearts are gripped by that vision, it'll help us to commit ourselves to the life of the local church now, and that brings me to the third question we might want to ask when we think about the new creation, and here it is, who will be there in the end? Now, there might be somebody sitting here this morning, I don't know, thinking to themselves, well, am I going to be there? And that's a very good question. Are you going to be there? What an amazing reunion it's going to be, uh, to be one of the people ruling with Christ in a perfect new creation and making a proper job of it. Um, You know, seeing wonderful results from our labor from all our efforts where everything that we do everything we touch turns to gold anybody who doesn't want that well i tremble for them and when the church gathers on sunday with people from different backgrounds and cultures which is what we are this morning that is a picture it's a tiny picture of what it's going to be like to be part of that wonderful multitude gathered around the throne. Who are they? What do all these different people gathered around the throne of God in heaven have in common? Well, in the interest of time, we didn't read the first part of chapter 7, but if you look at verse 3, you'll notice we're told that in this present age the people of God are given a special seal or mark on their foreheads. Now that's picture language. It's talking about the Holy Spirit by which the people of God are sealed for the day of redemption. And the point is this. That if God has put his Holy Spirit into your life by the mercies of Christ... You'll be there on the last day. You'll survive. And actually, if you think about it, it's a miracle that you're here today, isn't it? I mean, some of us, I'm sure, I can anyway, remember times when we were actually on the floor in our Christian journey. Anybody else echo that sentiment? We were overwhelmed by despair and sorrow wanting to give it all up. And yet here we are, November 2023, still here, still pressing on. That is a sign that if God seals us, he keeps us. What's another mark of the people who are going to be there? Well, they'll be clean. That, I think, is the message of verse 14. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, again, that's not talking about a select group of people who've made themselves acceptable to God by sheer willpower and self-discipline. It's not that. It's symbolic language. It's saying that when I become a Christian, I come to Jesus and I say, Look, here is my dirty robe. Um, It's horribly and permanently stained with all the filth and muck of my sin and my rebellion. I can never clean it myself. Please will you clean it for me? And uh, Jesus takes it and very wonderfully he washes it in his precious blood. And he gives me back a perfect spotless white robe. And that's the only way to be cleaned so that I can stand before God on the last day. Can I ask you, have you done that? Have you been washed? It's actually probably the most important question anybody will ever ask you. If you haven't, don't put it off. Ask Jesus to wash you, to seal you with his spirit, to make you one of his chosen people. Yet another mark of these people is they've been tried. Verse 14 says they've come out of the great tribulation. Now there's a lot of nonsense spoken about this. It's just talking about the ordinary hardships of being a Christian in a fallen world, in a world that's turned its back on Christ. Every Christian gets tried. Every Christian goes through the tribulation. Now, that means, of course, it's hard to be a Christian. Yes, it is. You know, we we can't do what, sadly, some churches do today. We can't tell you that becoming a Christian is the secret of a happy life. You know, as a Christian, you will find great joy. Yes, you will. But you'll find great trials as well. Because it isn't isn't easy, you see, to carry the burden of living for Jesus Christ in a world that's rejected him. It's not. Are you among those people? Have you had your sins washed away? Are you sealed with the Spirit? And have you begun to take on the yoke of Christ? I do hope you have. Because you see, if you have, the picture that John gives us at the end of chapter 7 is a picture of your personal future. Because one day you will be standing before the throne of God and the throne of the Lamb and you'll be serving him day and night, which means that God will use you. What an extraordinary thought. I can't imagine why God would want to use me, but if this is me that's what's going to happen you'll never be hungry or thirsty again and the lamb at the centre of the throne will be your shepherd isn't that an interesting change of the metaphor the lamb becoming a shepherd which means that you'll always be extremely precious to him and he will be with you every moment watching over you caring for you, wiping every tear from your eyes. And friends, there's a sense, you know, in which we we begin to experience all of this in this present life, because we begin to serve him now, uh, we begin to know what it is to have our tears wiped away, and we begin to discover what it means to have Jesus as our shepherd but I want to close the series by drawing your attention to a very striking contrast and invite you to go away and think about it. At the end of chapter 6, there is an awful picture. It's in verse 15 and following. The picture is of all the great men of the world, kings, princes, generals... And throughout their lives, they've scorned the love of the Lamb. And at the end of chapter 6, they are falling down before his wrath. Yes, for some, the wrath of the Lamb will be too terrible to face. And John sees this picture of the rocks and the mountains covering them. And these great men are heard of no more. But then at the end of chapter 7, there's this other crowd of people. Just ordinary people, like me and you. Very few kings. Not many powerful people there. But they have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And in verse 11, they're falling, they're falling down as well, aren't they? But not in terror. They're falling down in adoration and worship. So have you got the picture? On the last day, everyone is falling down. Good people, bad people, rich people, poor people, young people, old people. Everyone here this morning, all falling down. And we're either going to be falling down in terror, God forbid, or we're going to be falling down in adoration. And uh, what you will be doing then depends entirely on what you do with Jesus today. Let's pray. Lord, we we praise you that one day a great multitude that no one can count will be with Jesus in a perfect new creation. We praise you for the wonder and for the glory of that vision. We ask that our hearts and hopes might be so fixed on that that we will gladly commit ourselves to the hard work of a local church now. And that we will want to persevere, not just individually, but corporately, together, encouraging one another, and all the more, as we see that day approaching. And we pray that on that day, no one here will fall down in terror, but only in adoration and praise. Grant this for his name's sake, we pray. Amen.